It has been said of the New Testament that in all of the New Testament, no circumstance, no situation arises which the Lord did not deal with, either by command or principle, in the sermon we are studying on Sunday night right now. That is the Sermon on the Mount. Everywhere in the New Testament, any circumstance that arises, any situation that is dealt with, the Lord has already addressed it either by command or in principle in this great sermon. No wonder it is called the Constitution of Christianity. The masterpiece indeed from the master himself. Think of the magnitude of this marvelous message from the master. But as the late Eldred Stevens, very fine gospel preacher, once said, this is not a sermon to be applauded, but applied. That's the key. We're to put it into practice. And the passage at which we look tonight as we continue our study of this great sermon is indeed one that must be applied by every one of us if we are to keep the church pure, as the Lord certainly desires us to do. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, where Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. If you think about it, this entire seventh chapter of Matthew contains a theme of judgment. Go back to verses 1 and 2. And these verses deal with judgment as they deal with the wrong kind of judgment. Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So there's judgment, but the wrong kind of judgment. Then we come down to verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. That involves judgment and the condemnation of those who follow that broad way who will be condemned tragically in the judgment. Then we're back to verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That is judgment, obviously. The judgment that will ultimately come at the last day. If we move on down to a verse we have not yet covered, verse 23 we read, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness, that's judgment. And then finally, verse 27, And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. That's judgment. And so there is a theme of judgment. Verses 1 and 2, verse 13, verse 19, verse 23, verse 27, all through this 
7th chapter. And do we not get the impression that Jesus wants us to be aware, fully aware, of the certainty of the judgment that is to come? But do we not also see that Jesus puts every one of us into the judging business by saying, beware of false prophets? He tells us all, every Christian, not just the elders, although they certainly have a unique and special responsibility to guard the flock and to convict the gainsayers and to stop the mouths of those who would who would teach false doctrine, but every child of God, every child of God is involved here. The admonition is to all of us, beware of false prophets. So let's carefully examine tonight the nature of this warning. And the first thing we need to realize is that there has never been a time that God has not condemned false prophets. God has always condemned false prophets. Go back to Jeremiah 14 and verse 15. Therefore, thus says the Lord, concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, whom I did not send, and who say, sword and famine shall not be in this land. Jeremiah goes on to say, by sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed. In other words, there was a time of judgment that was coming upon God's people, and yet there were prophets in the land who were saying, no, 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 sword and famine will not come to this land. But Jeremiah was saying it was coming, and through Jeremiah, God said, by sword and famine that they say is not going to come to this land, by those very things, these prophets shall be consumed. Jeremiah, again, 14, verse 15. And then, again, from Jeremiah 6, 14, concerning these false prophets, Jeremiah writes, they have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And then we come to the New Testament and Peter's statement in 2 Peter 2 and verse 1. But there were also false prophets, he says, among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. There have always been false prophets, and God has always condemned them. But who are they? Who are these false prophets? Well, they are those who pretend to be faithfully teaching God's Word, but they are actually teaching the doctrines of men. They pretend to be sheep. In other words, they pretend to be faithful followers of Christ. But as our text under consideration tonight says, they are really ravening wolves. That is, they are false teachers who deceive people into following doctrines that will condemn their souls. And yet on the surface, the false prophet appears to be everything desirable. He's nice. He is pleasant. He seems to be thoroughly Christian. He seems sincere. He talks about God. He talks about Christ. But in the fruit, in the fruit of that false teacher's teaching, there's something wrong. What is it? What is it that is specifically wrong with the false prophet? What's wrong is that his teaching and his influence have no straight gate 
and no narrow way. And that's a world in which we find ourselves tonight, tragically. Someone, for example, to illustrate this point, is standing outside the gate, as it were. Someone is standing outside that gate into which Jesus, in verses 13 and 14 of this chapter, admonished us to enter. Enter by the narrow gate. And so here's someone standing outside that gate. In other words, he's contemplating obedience to the gospel of Christ. He's standing outside the gate. He's looking through that gate at the narrow way. He's heard a sound gospel sermon. And he's trying to make a decision. But the false prophets are there, as it were, in their favorite place. And they are saying to him, don't enter that gate. It's not necessary to enter that gate. That gate is too narrow. That way is too difficult. And it is unnecessarily so. It doesn't require all of that. Think about those, for example, who tell us that baptism is non-essential to salvation. How many are there in the world in which we live tonight who are teaching that baptism is not essential to salvation. I'll tell you this, tragically, there are far more in this world tonight teaching it's not essential than there are who are teaching it's essential. I think that's a safe statement to make. And so they are the ones, in effect, standing at that gate as a sermon is preached, as it were, saying, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, quoting the very words of Jesus, and yet that false teacher says, no, that's not what Jesus meant. That's not necessary. Or, that false prophet is standing outside the gate as a sermon is preached as the one we viewed on video from the late Bobby Duncan Wednesday night on undenominational, true undenominational Christianity. A brilliant sermon, very clear, very well presented with a good attitude, and yet the false prophet is there saying, that one church of which he was speaking is not necessary for you to be added to. You can simply choose the church of your choice. Don't think that there is but one, but you choose the one of your choice. In other words, you are saved, and once you're saved, not by baptism, but by faith alone, then you make the choice as to which church you enter. Are there any prophets, as it were, teachers, as it were, standing at the gate and saying that to those who may be contemplating true obedience to the gospel and entering by the narrow gate? Oh, yes, they're there. They're there in their favorite place, trying to discourage people from entering the narrow gate. Is it the case that the false teacher does not say anything that is right? No, that's the problem. <laughs> he will say some things generally that are right, but he will not go far enough. And he'll leave out some things that are absolutely crucial to pleasing God and the salvation of our souls. Again, He's like those prophets of whom Jeremiah wrote, they have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. 
And that's what the false teacher does. And what kind of methods will these teacher, teachers use? Well, there are New Testament passages that reveal those methods. Look at a few with me. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3. Paul there writes, But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Deception. Deception. What about 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 2? But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And so what is clearly pointed out there is that there are teachers who walk in craftiness. There are those who handle the word of God deceitfully. Paul said we're not among those people. That's not what we do. And then in 2 Corinthians 11, 13 and 14, Paul wrote, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And then he says, don't be shocked, and no wonder, as he puts it, no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. And then Colossians 2 and verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. And then what about Ephesians 4.14? We looked at this passage this morning. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. In 2 Peter 2 and verse 19, Peter says, These false teachers promise liberty, but bring men into the bondage of sin. In effect, they're telling you, you can be free, you can please God without being restricted so much as sound gospel preachers would tell you, but don't, you don't have to listen to them. You can have liberty, not true liberty, not the liberty that comes through obeying the gospel, but a liberty according to them that will actually bring you into the bondage of sin, according to Peter. However, those who have truly obeyed the gospel enjoy true liberty. We enjoy true freedom, the freedom in Christ. We've obtained true freedom in Christ, and having done so, we must determine never to be brought into bondage by any man. Isn't that what Paul said in Galatians 4? At verse 9, he said, But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? Of course, in that context, Paul was talking about the law of Moses and those false teachers who were trying to bind the law of Moses upon these Gentile Christians. He said, You have been, 
you have been brought into true liberty through the gospel, and now you are going to, under the guise of liberty, a false liberty, going to go, actually go back into bondage. And regarding the efforts of false teachers to bring Paul into that kind of bondage, what did he say about that? In that same Galatian letter, in Galatians 2 and verse 5, we'll go back to verse 4 for the context. And this occurred because of false brethren, false brethren, secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Now listen to verse 5. To whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Lots of passages that deal with what the Lord deals with here in the Sermon on the Mount in this text we're looking at tonight. But now we ask this question, can we recognize the false prophet? Can we know who he is? Can we recognize him? Well, the very nature of the case here in Matthew 7 indicates that, first of all, there are false prophets. They do exist. Secondly, what is clearly pointed out is that they will enter in among the saints. But thirdly, they can be recognized. Fourthly, they can be tested. They can be proven. And fifthly, they can be properly identified for what they are. In Revelation 2, verse 2, Jesus commended the church at Ephesus for recognizing and dealing with the false teachers among them. Now later to that same church, he said, I have this one thing against you, you've left your first love. And that's something that even in standing against error, we must never lose our first love, that initial zeal and love for the Lord. And yes, even in standing against false prophets, why do we stand against them? Because we hate them? No, just the opposite. We stand against them because we love them. We love them in that agape sense, the highest form of love. We don't have a warm uh, affection for them because they are con dealing and uh, teaching contrary to the will of God. But we nonetheless love them in that highest form of love, that is, the love that says we want to do and will do and must do what is best for the one who is loved. And yes, that includes the false prophet. We have to love that false prophet enough to resist him and to stand against him. But to do so, as a Christian should, Jesus tells us, as the late Marshall Keeble said, to be fruit inspectors. Marshall Keeble was quoted as saying, I'm not a judge, I'm a fruit inspector. Well, that's what we're to do. Look at verses 16 through 20. You will know them by their fruits. You don't judge their hearts. You have no right to do that. That gets you in violation of Matthew 7, 1 and 2, doesn't it? You can't do that. But you can look at their fruits. And then he illustrates it. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes? You don't get grapes from thorn bushes. Do you get figs from thistles? Those are rhetorical questions, obviously. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit. But a bad tree bears bad fruit. So that's the point. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. So you have to know them by their fruits. But what does he mean by fruits here? 
He could mean their deeds. He could mean the way they are living their lives, but he could also mean the doctrine that they are teaching, or it could be both, the combination of both their deeds and their doctrines. But since he has just warned about false prophets, that is, teachers, it seems logical he has in view here the doctrines that these people teach. That's the fruit we need to see. Many times people will look at the good lives of false teachers. They'll look at their good attitudes. They'll conclude they must be teaching the truth since they are such good servants. And as Brother Joe Weir pointed out in Bible class this morning, many times people who gather on a given Sunday by the thousands to hear some man proclaim his teaching may think, how could that many people, how could that many people be misjudging this man? Look at the kind of following he has. But you see, it's not the attitude that he manifests. It's not the manner with which he presents what he teaches. It's the fruit. It's what he is teaching that is the key. No man is a servant of Christ. No man is a servant of Christ if he does not teach the gospel of Christ. He cannot be a servant of Christ if he's not teaching and preaching the true gospel of Christ. Go back with me to the Galatian letter from which we have taken some key passages already. And in that Galatian letter at chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, a very familiar text to us, I'm sure. To these Christians who were being seduced by these false brethren to go back into Judaism, he said, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. There is not another, in other words. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. And then he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. For emphasis, he says, as we have said before, so say I now again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. And John reminds us in 2 John 9 through 11, whoever goes beyond the doctrine of Christ, transgresses the doctrine of Christ, he does not have God. He does not have God. If he transgresses or goes beyond the doctrine of Christ. It's been said that our greatest enemies, our greatest enemies are the Savior simulators. They are the greatest enemies of truth. The ones who are the Savior simulators. The late Eldred Stevens again wrote, We need not fear those who militantly persecute or flagrantly ignore, but must fear those who cleverly counterfeit. And there are those tragically still today who cleverly counterfeit. The message of Christ is compared to seed. In Luke 8, then the context of verses 4 through 15 and the Luke's account there of the parable of the sower. 
Luke 8, 11, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. And when you go back to Genesis 1, what do you find there? I think mentioned for the first time in verse 11, that everything that God made produced what? After its kind. So if the seed is the word of God, then what it produces is Christians, nothing more, nothing less. And anything but the word of God will not produce a true believer. You see, you cannot teach a different gospel and produce a true believer. And one cannot obey another gospel and become a Christian because there is but one. Some have adopted the philosophy of Protagoras, the Greek sophist who asserted man is the measure of all things. Man is the measure of all things. He meant by this that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Every man's idea, no matter how far-fetched it is, is as good as any other view of truth. And that's just about where we are today in so many places, tragically. The late Bill Jackson, gospel preacher, wrote, How many have been those individuals and congregations who've been led away from the truth and into sectarianism because of false teachers, be they preachers, elders, Bible class teachers, workers with youth, etc., who approached them with a definite air of deep spirituality and godliness and who made very appealing speeches about church growth, evangelism, and saving of our youth, being most anxious to hear these things and then not even bothering to examine these teachers either biblically or in terms of their tactics or motivation, brethren then have found that souls have been greatly misled and often the church splintered. That has happened. That has happened more times than we'd like to think, hasn't it? So what are the tests that we're to conduct? What are they to tell us about a man? You know, John wrote in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, that is, every teacher, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so, what are the tests to tell us about a man? Well, first of all, has he himself obeyed the teaching of the Spirit? The teaching of the Spirit that comes through the Word of God. Remember 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. And we've all been made to drink into one Spirit. That's a passage that says, By the teaching of the Holy Spirit we are baptized into one body. That's the church. And then we continue to drink into the Spirit, that is, into the teaching of the Spirit through the Word from that day forward. And so the first question we ask concerning any teacher is, has he obeyed the teaching of the Spirit? Has he heard the Word? Has he believed it? Has he believed in Jesus as the Christ? Has he moved forward based upon that belief to repent of his sins, to confess Jesus as the Christ? And... Has he been baptized, buried in water, 
for the forgiveness of sins. And then we ask this question, is he continuing to bear the fruit of the Spirit in his life? Galatians 5, 22 through 26. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Is this teacher continuing to bear that fruit in his life, having obeyed the gospel? And is his teaching true to the Scriptures? Remember those Bereans in Acts 17, 11? They were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they searched the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And we have the Scriptures, and we have an obligation to search them to see whether the things we are hearing are so. And is he, as he teaches and preaches, is he presenting the whole counsel of God? Acts 20 and 27, as Paul told those Ephesian elders, he had done from day one in his work with them. Is he proclaiming the whole counsel of God or is he holding back some profitable things? In Acts 20 and verse 20, Paul said, I did not keep back anything that was profitable for you. Taught you publicly, taught you from house to house. Or is this man's teaching unbalanced? Is it unbalanced in the sense that he is emphasizing the pleasant, the ear tickling, while soft peddling, reproof, and rebuke. Is he imbalanced? Yes, there are tests to tell us about a man. And every Christian has an obligation to use those tests. False teachers may deceive us, but God will not be deceived. Going back to Matthew seven nineteen. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's God and Christ in the judgment, and they will not be deceived. But we must be determined that we're not going to be among the deceived who are led astray by the false teacher who will lead astray the souls of men, those souls that will ultimately be eternally Condemned. The Hebrews writer reminds us in Hebrews 4.13, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Are there any false teachers out there who may have completely bought into what they have been teaching to the point that they are sincere but sincerely wrong? We do not doubt it. Do not doubt it at all. But their sincerity, even if they're sincere in what they have been taught, what they have imbibed, and what they are imparting to others, it matters not in terms of the eternal destiny. Because error is still error, sin is still sin, truth is still truth. And whether they have indeed imbibed the strong delusion that they have been determined to embrace so long that they sincerely believe they're right in it, or whether they are deliberately deceiving the souls of men, 
And we cannot judge the hearts of individuals, as we said earlier. Regardless, we must remain fruit inspectors. And thanks be to God, we have the means by which to do that and the means to know whether what we are hearing and what we have obeyed is truth. And truth is not fluid. Truth is not changeable. Truth is absolute and knowable. And Jesus summarized it so beautifully when he said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Have you been freed in the only way that freedom is worth having through the gospel of Christ? Having heard it to believe that Jesus is the Christ, to repent of your sins, confess him as the Christ, and be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. If not, we plead with you to do that this very night. If you need to come home to your first love as one who has gone astray in ways that have brought reproach upon the church in a public manner, come home in that same way and let us pray with you and for you. To the God who loves you and will welcome you home with open arms, as it were. And for all who need no repentance, let us continue to take very seriously the Lord's admonition here in this great Sermon on the Mount. By their fruits you shall know them. And may we always be fruit inspectors with the attitude that God would have us to possess. Not judging the hearts of anyone, but simply looking at the fruit on the tree. And doing all that we can to bring those who may be teaching or have embraced false doctrine back to the unchangeable and knowable truth. Tonight, if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, we extend it now. Let us stand and say.